you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I remember an incident about 40 years ago when I was uh, at a convention. A number of other pastors were there, and we gathered one night in one of the rooms, and we were uh, debating theology. And we were specifically debating the meaning of 2 Peter 3.9, although the discussion started with the last part of it. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I will leave you to guess which side of the, the debate I took. But anyway, in the course of the argument, <clears throat> one man, a friend of mine, a pastor for many years, uh, said rather forcefully, I can solve this argument. I can end it right now. And I thought, well, that's interesting. The church has been arguing about this for 475 years. You're going to end it right now. Okay. And uh, so he said, uh, this is what it means. And he took the opposite side of my argument. And uh, then he said, because that's what Dr. So-and-so said. And he gave the name of a megachurch pastor at the time. And he said, so that's it. I said, what do you mean that's it? And he said, look, the man has over 4,000 people in his worship service on Sunday morning. I said, I don't care if he has 40,000. He's wrong. I learned that day that many people validate theology by the size of the church rather than by the Bible or by a cogent argument. Uh, if you take a course in logic, you know that that is a fallacy known as appeal to authority. Now, in the church, we do have an ultimate authority, but it is not a megachurch pastor. It's not a pope. It's not a council. It's not a creed. It's Holy Scripture. In the church of Jesus Christ, we kind of center doctrine around what are known as the five solas. And sola, of course, is a Latin word meaning only or alone. But we say that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And the way that we know that is sola scriptura. That is, our ultimate authority is Holy Scripture. And the Scripture is not only authoritative, it is sufficient. We find everything that we need to know about worshiping God and about living the Christian life in the scriptures. They are our ultimate source of authority. But I want to look at another one of those solas this morning. Sola gratia, by grace alone. I want to look at how grace relates to justification. And once again, Paul makes his argument here uh, by appealing to the contrast between Adam and Christ. And there's a great number of contrasts that are implied here. We looked at a number of them when we look at, looked at verses 15 through 17. They were intended to show the way in which the work of Adam and the work of Christ were dissimilar. Uh, the new list of contrasts that I want to look at here in verses 18 and 19 shows the fullness of what Paul is teaching in these verses and serves as kind of a summary of all of them. 
But the contrast are this. Adam versus Christ. The one trespass of Adam versus the one act of righteousness of Christ. The disobedience of Adam versus the obedience of Christ. Death versus life. And condemnation versus justification. And of these five contrasts, I think the greatest is the one between condemnation and justification. Since this is what the chapter has been dealing with uh, from the beginning in one way or another. Uh, Last week we talked about how God's grace would be the subject of the rest of Romans chapter 5. And so I've uh, called this sermon Justification by Grace. But I wonder if that sounds correct to you. Because we've already been talking about, uh, in chapter 4, justification by faith alone. And how that was the rallying cry of Martin Luther and of all the magisterial uh, reformers. Uh, Luther said that justification by faith is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. So if that is true, why would we talk of justification by grace? And the answer is because both statements are part of the same truth. Since the justification that is received by faith alone is also by grace alone. So a full statement of doctrine would be justification by the grace of God alone received through faith alone. Now remember we've said that justification is an act uh, of God whereas the judge, he declares us to be in a right standing before him as far as his justice is concerned. We are not just in ourselves, of course. So the only way by which we can be declared to have a right standing before God is on the basis of the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. He died for our sins. And he was raised for our justification. So by Christ bearing the punishment that we deserve, by his taking the wrath of God that was ours upon himself, and by the application of his righteousness to us, by God's grace, God can declare us to be righteous. And so he can be both just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus Christ. And salvation is utterly of grace. It is completely apart from merit. We do not merit our salvation. We receive it by grace through faith. And after we have lived as Christians for 70 years, we still do not merit it. It is still by grace through faith. We are always, always going to heaven by the grace of God. No other way. So justification 
is what this great section of Romans is all about. And it's important that you remember that, I don't want to say this several more times, justification means to declare righteous, not to make righteous. We are declared righteous because the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. It is a uh, forensic declaration, theologians say. Now you know the meaning of the word forensic. If you don't, I'll give you the dictionary definition. Belonging to, used in, or suitable to the courts or to public discussion and debate. Justification is forensic. Before the court of heaven, we are declared to be righteous. Now there are those in the Roman church, for instance, who would say that's a legal fiction. That you can't declare people righteous who are not righteous. But you've totally forgotten the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, if you say that. We're not declared righteous by our own effort, our own merit. We are declared righteous because Jesus Christ died in our place. And the proof that God accepted his death as propitiation for our sins is he rose from the dead the third day. And so God declares that we are righteous based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. That is the only hope that we have of salvation. The court of heaven has declared us to be righteous. We're not made righteous, but declared to be so. And the reason that justification actually refers not to a righteousness attained or, by, or produced by an individual is that act of God by which the righteousness of Christ is credited to our account, is imputed to us. The Reformers had a, had a, a rather uh, fancy-sounding uh, Latin phrase for that. They said that believers are simul, justus, et peccator. And that means justified at the same time as sinful. We are both sinful but justified. We, we, do not, we do not come to faith in Jesus Christ and then never commit another sin. There, there are denominations who teach that, but the Bible doesn't, nor does our experience teach that. We know that we are, continue to sin after we are declared righteous. We don't like it, and we confess it, and we seek forgiveness, and we seek to overcome our sin, and we no longer make sin our habits and our practice, but we do continue to sin. So the context of Romans chapter 5 is very helpful in coming to understand and appreciate that term at the same time just and sinful. From the... Uh, the contrast that I just gave you, I said that justification is contrasted with condemnation in verse 18. Look at it. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. If that is the contrast, then we need to ask the question, what happens when people are condemned? 
Does the act of condemnation make them lawbreakers? Or to use biblical terminology, does it make them sinners? Or does it merely mean that they are declared to be such? And the answer, of course, is it means they are declared to be sinners. They're already sinners. They're, all, they're already lawbreakers. Condemnation just declares it to be so. The act of condemnation merely declares that this is so and then subjects them to whatever penalty that the law may prescribe. The same idea applies to justification. The term, again, means to declare one to be in a right standing before God's law. Now, in human courts, that might be on the basis of an individual's performance of righteousness. But that can never be true in God's court, since no one is really righteous. Paul has shown that in the preceding chapters. If you want to be justified apart from grace, then you have to be sinless. Not only do you have to live sinless, you have to somehow figure out a way to be born sinless. Because we've already seen that all men sinned in Adam. When Adam sinned, all sinned. Because he was our federal head and representative. So how can God declare us to be righteous? Only on the grounds of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us. That is, we are justified by grace alone. God declares us to be righteous by grace alone. Because we are not righteous. But Jesus Christ is righteous. He lived the perfect life. There is another uh, explanation that is derived from the wording of verse 19. Paul says that on the basis of Adam's one act of disobedience, many were made sinners. We've already talked about in chapter 5 how that is to be taken. It does not mean that all were affected by sin and thus became sinning individuals, although that did happen, and that is true. But what Paul means here is that the entire race was declared to be sinful because of Adam's sin. When Adam sinned, you sinned. I sinned. Because he was our federal head, representative. That's why death passed to all men. That's why Paul says that death reigned from Adam to Moses, even, even over those who had not sinned in a similar way. We said just to make it easy to understand, why did infants die from Adam to Moses, or even now? They have not committed any sin of their own. So why would they die? Because the sentence of death came when Adam sinned, because in Adam all sinned. If the many were made sinners in that sense, then it must be in a corresponding act, the many will be made righteous. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you are in Christ. And to be in Christ is to be declared righteous. The one act of obedience 
of Jesus Christ brings justification. So, that brings us to a, an important point. That is the idea of the obedience of Jesus. Paul mentions this in verse 19. And it's the first time he has used that word. He's been talking all along of the difference between Adam's disobedience and Christ's obedience. But up to now, he's used different terminology to describe it. Uh, in discussing the obedience of Christ, theologians usually distinguish being, between what is called the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. The active obedience of Christ refers to his submission to an active conformity to the law of Moses. You remember how Paul describes Jesus in the book of Galatians when he says that he is born under the law to redeem those who are under the law? That means that when Jesus became man, he deliberately subjected himself to the law of Moses. And then he kept that law perfectly. Every moment of his existence... Jesus Christ loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved his neighbor as himself. As a man, Jesus Christ kept the law of God perfectly, proving that the defect is not in the law. The defect is in human beings. We don't keep the law because we are sinners. Uh, but Jesus Christ kept the law completely. Uh, throughout his life, he exercised a full and active obedience to God's standard. So when Jesus Christ came to the cross, when they nailed him to the cross, they nailed a man, a man who had kept God's law. In every respect, every respect, he had not in any way broken God's law. He came to the cross as a lamb without spot and without blemish. He came to the cross as a man perfect in every way. That is the active obedience of Christ. Jesus Christ came to this earth and kept the law of God perfectly. The second way that we distinguish the obedience of Christ is his passive obedience. That refers to his submission to the cross. You remember in, in the accounts in the Gospels of Jesus's agony in Gethsemane the night before he was crucified and he prayed and said, Father, if it is possible May this cup be taken from me. Now Jesus was not asking if he could somehow escape the death of crucifixion. Many men died that way. There were to be two who would die with him. It was being made sin that troubled him. He was to be made sin. He that knew no sin was to become sin for us that we might become sin the righteousness of God in Him. God the Father 
would forsake him in an act that is too profound for us to even begin to understand. Jesus Christ bore the weight of sin on the cross. That is what he prayed if there was any other way for it to be done. There was no other way. Sometimes people say, well, you know, I think God is a God of love and mercy and and I, I just think that that everybody will go to heaven regardless. Well, then why did Jesus die? What was the purpose of him becoming sin? What was the purpose of the wrath of God being poured out upon him if God is just going to take everybody regardless? If there's some other way to heaven, why did Jesus die? You see, the Christian faith by its nature is exclusive. You know, it's very narrow. We are saying, I am saying, that there is no other way to be right with God except by Jesus Christ. No other way. Because no one else has kept the law of God perfectly. No one else was born of a virgin, not of Adam's race. No one else could pay the penalty for sin. No one else could bear the wrath of God. Other people could be crucified, but it wouldn't matter. I could not die for your sins. I couldn't die for my own sins. I'm a sinner. I've not kept God's law. Only Jesus Christ in his active and passive obedience can be the perfect sacrifice for sin. And Jesus dreaded that. The passive obedience of Christ is what Paul is referring to here when he says of the obedience of one man through which the many will be made righteous. The active obedience of Christ qualified him for the passive obedience. Had he not kept the law of God perfectly, then his passive obedience would have been useless. But he actively kept the law of God in every respect. And so that qualified him to be the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. It was his one act of passive obedience corresponding to Adam's one act of disobedience that atoned for our sins and made it possible for the Father to impute the righteousness of Christ to our account. It was the active and passive obedience of Christ by which God to, could declare believers to be righteous. One of the great preachers of the 20th century was uh, a man by the name of uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse. And uh, he, when he was about 15 or 16 years old, he said that he, he was having a great deal of trouble uh, understanding uh, exactly how God made that transaction, the imputing of sins to Christ and the imputing of uh, righteousness to the believer. And so he went to this older pastor, and the pastor took a hymnal, 
and he put it in Barnhouse's left hand. And he said, all right, this represents your sin. And he took and he, he pressed down on the book, and he said, it's a heavy weight. Your sin is there. It condemns you to hell. There is nothing you can do about it. You are a sinner, and you deserve the wrath of a holy God. He said, now, Jesus Christ goes to a cross, and he dies for sinners. You believe that, and God imputes his righteousness to you. Now, your sins are gone, and you have the righteousness of Christ. All of his righteousness is upon you. All of your sins are upon him. They're gone. And so the, the preacher then uh, read from 1 Peter chapter 2. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live to righteousness. And then the preacher read from Isaiah 53, the verses that Peter is referring to. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, and each have turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So the, the preacher took the hymnal and he transferred it back to Barnhouse's left hand. And he said, whose sins were laid on Jesus? Barnhouse said, our sins. And he said, yes, but whose sins does that mean? Barnhouse answered again, our sins. And the preacher said, whose sins are those? Barnhouse said, my sins. <laughs> and the preacher said, there, you have it. My sins. My sins were laid upon Christ. My sin was imputed to Christ. His righteousness is imputed to me. This, this great double transaction is what justification is all about. And it comes by grace through faith. It is all of grace. What did you ever do to cause God to impute all of your sins to Christ? Nothing. What could you ever do that would cause God to impute all of your sins to Christ? Nothing. What did you ever do that would cause God to impute all of Christ's righteousness to you? Nothing. You just believe. When God grants you the gift of faith, you believe. It is all of grace. That transfer, sins to Christ, righteousness to the believer... That is justification. And it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. We sing a song sometimes, and sometimes, you know, 
music directors want to want to leave out verses. I don't I don't like that because hymns tell a story, and you ought to sing all the verses. Well, about 26 years ago, I had a young man here from Bryan College. We were going to sing this hymn one Sunday morning. He came into my office and he said, "Should I sing the third verse?" I said, "If you don't, I'll fire you." And he laughed, and I didn't laugh, and so he quit laughing. He and I are still great, great friends, even though, even though he's a Georgia fan. Do you remember what Spafford wrote in the third verse of his great hymn, It Is Well With My Soul? My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. My sin. My sin is nailed to the cross. Not mine anymore. It's all been put upon Jesus Christ. And He paid the price for my sin. He paid the price. God has accepted the price that He paid. And the proof of that is Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But this double transfer, this double imputation is all of grace. Nothing compelled God to act in this way toward us. Nothing made Jesus Christ die for your sin. Nothing made God impute the righteousness of Christ to you. There was nothing in us that would cause God to do that. He did it because of grace. Because He is gracious. This salvation is all of grace. We don't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. It is because God decided to be gracious to us. Nothing else. That's what the hymn writer mean when he said, In my hand, no price I bring, simply to the cross I come. Just grace. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And you will be saved by grace through faith by Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father and our God,